a specialist in biotech and global health. My guest today is a scholar with the Brownstone Institute and has experience with the World Health Organization. As an executive committee member with Panda and a champion for truth and transparency in COVID analysis, Dr. David Bell says that fear and conflicts of interest have created a pandemic industry that is actually damaging to people's overall health. Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. You know, one of the things that is just, I mean, there's a lot of things I want to talk about, but I mean, the first great big issue is this thing about a pandemic treaty. And uh, I mean, it just sounds ominous that countries would hand some doctors in the WHO, and you could go ahead and correct me wherever I go off, because this is just, you know, looking at this, the, the ability to declare pandemics and lockdowns and, and all the ramifications of countries closing and, and, I mean, businesses, deaths. I was shocked with the very first time this came up that it literally, I think it affects the sovereignty of a country, but why are you, tell me about why you're so concerned about the WHO uh, and this pandemic treaty. Yeah, it's, it's not that's the WHO. Um, and, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with declaring a pandemic. We had a pandemic in 1968, 69, for, mm -hmm. you know, it was called the Hong Kong flu. Um, right. A million people died. Um, we had Woodstock. We got on with life normally. They didn't close down countries. They didn't impoverish hundreds of millions of people. We just cope with it like adults. The problem now is that um, the WHO is a very different entity to what it was then. Um, it, it's heavily influenced by private money and private individuals and corporate money. And there, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in global health. Uh, it was, the WHO was set up originally to help populations and focus on large burden diseases that, you know, it always had a role in pandemics when there's an outbreak across borders. It's useful to have an organization that can help to sort of coordinate a response. But that never included removing people's basic rights. It never included, um, you know, closing down countries, stopping trade, stopping yeah. people accessing a clinic. And the reason for that isn't just, you know, some idea of freedom. It's because that's really harmful to health as well. So we've, um, yes, yeah, so, so, so it, it's not just a WHO, there's a, there's a sort of a pandemic industry that has grown. And right. what worries me more is not some, you know, theoretical loss of sovereignty, which is real potentially, but you know, that depends on how much a country goes along with this. Hmm. But, we're creating a large industry of people whose sole purpose is to surveil for viruses, find some, theorize that they may cause a bad outbreak, and then close down people and design a vaccine, which is now going to be, you know, 100 days for an mRNA vaccine, which you then mandate and force people to take. And this is just, it's printing money for a lot of people, but it is not good for society, it's not good for health. And we've seen that with COVID where it's sort of the first experiment going around, going along those lines. And the result is a huge crisis globally in malnutrition, in increasing of other infectious diseases that are neglected. 
of supply lines, et cetera, we see in the economy in North America, we see it much worse in low-income countries. And what the pandemic industry seeks to do is to make this almost a permanent uh, way of doing things. It's based on a fallacy. The, the idea that pandemics are becoming more frequent is indeed historically not true. You know, we had the Spanish flu in 1918 to 1920. That was the last really bad pandemic. Before that, we had them because we didn't have antibiotics and we had big outbreaks of bubonic plague, outbreaks of cholera, et cetera. They don't happen internationally now. Um, we have flu outbreaks. We've had two bad ones since 1920. And then we've had COVID, which, you know, is, has killed a significant number of people, but most of the deaths on the statistics are probably people who died with it. They're nearly all elderly, they're nearly all very sick. So it's not like a bad flu that takes out a lot of younger people. Mm-hmm. But you know, the point is that pandemics are very infrequent. And you know, the idea that we're living closer to wildlife now is simply a fallacy. We're not. There's less wildlife. So there's less chance of transmission from animals and even domestic animals where we used to live very closely. But most people now are in urban environments, they don't. So it's based on a fallacy which no one seems to challenge. And I think that's because there's so much money to be made in this that it is just driving itself. Um, so do you think, uh, when you look at this, doctor, that I'm listening to you talk and I'm going, if we go along with this, thinking this is good for us to, in a global sense, protect each other and stand together. You're saying all we are doing is empowering corporations or organizations or groups of people to just print money, and they're the ones who are going to be in power. Not necessarily the first thing is to look after our health. Their first thing is to make money. Yeah, that's correct. Um, The idea of a private corporation is to make money for its shareholders. So the job of Pfizer and Pfizer's board is to maximize profits for the shareholders. Yep. The job of BlackRock, um, which owns big chunks of Pfizer, big chunks of the New York Times, big chunks of CNN, et cetera, is to maximize profits for their shareholders. That's what even legally they're supposed to do. So that's why we have checks and balances. It's why we used to have very strong conflict of interest laws. So that right. there was a, a firewall between making this money for the shareholders and doing what's best for humanity. But now, you know, now we see the, the CEO of Pfizer being touted as a public health expert who's there to advise the world on what medicine they should take next for their health. I mean, of course he won't say don't take any more Pfizer medicines because they may be bad for you. You will maximize the chance of you taking them because that's what his job is. So we've sort of turned health into a almost purely for-profit industry. So if we look back at the outcomes and the collateral damage that happened during COVID, talk to me about that. There were outcomes that we never expected and there was collateral damage that mainstream media doesn't seem to want to talk about. Yeah, I don't think anything was unexpected. Um, we knew, and we've always known, and WHO has documents about this, that if you 
interrupt supply lines, if you reduce travel, etc., then you harm economies. And when you harm, harm economies, you increase mortality. And yeah, for a whole range of reasons. And you know, there are a series of UK studies called the Whitehall studies, quite well known public health, where they looked at tens of thousands of people um, who work in, you know, in the public service in the UK and looked at, you know, they showed that the higher up you are in the chain, the better off you are, the longer you live, you know, taking all other factors into account. And if you're in, forced into poverty, you, you die sooner, um, you know, even leaving out smoking, drinking, etc. So we know that making people unemployed on mass, et cetera, is harmful to health. We know that that shortens the life expectancies. It also stops the kids going to college. It interrupts them, you know, their ability to pay off debt. In, in low-income countries, it's even worse because the health systems are much more fragile. There is a lot more infectious disease where if you cannot access a clinic, so if you're a child with fever immediately, then he may die or she may die in three days' time from malaria. So as soon as you close clinics, as soon as you make travel hard, you increase mortality from infectious disease. So there's nothing new in any of this. If you stop screening for cancer or you stop giving chemotherapy, it's something like 40% of people in the UK stop their chemotherapy, then of course a lot more people die. Wow. So what is strange is that this was um, ignored. And you know, public health is, the basis of public health is risk versus benefit. You, you know, there may be a benefit from a lockdown or a vaccine. There's a risk and you weigh them. And you look at, is the cost worth the gain? Um, leaving aside the fact that you also have to give people a choice to make their own because they even know best their situation. And then there was, it seems there was some work on this by the Dutch, by the UK, et cetera, but these were never made public almost certainly because whenever you sit down and do the calculations, you find that locking down a society for a disease that kills almost, you know, almost always old people who are already sick, that you will never get a net benefit. You will get a net harm. See, I've, I'm listening to people now and there are places that have statistics that I, I haven't had a chance to dive into them myself, but they're supposed to be experts that are saying that, you know, kind of what you said and blown up, that these last couple of years of how these countries handled COVID, that the deaths they caused far outweigh any kind of people they saved. Would you agree with that or what's your comment? It appears that way. It's very hard with the statistics that we have which is you know a whole another issue but yeah you know the, the way that we've recorded COVID deaths is unique we've never done this before because you know if someone has a positive PCR test for a virus and they die three weeks later you know for anything from cancer to a motorbike accident to pneumonia you don't normally automatically attribute that to the virus right but that is what we've done so we've yeah. certainly inflated greatly We've also just talked about mortality and not how old they were, how many life years they lost. We normally talk about, you know, we, we say a five-year-old dying is more tragic than an 85-year-old dying in terms of the impact on life, you know, obviously. Mm -hmm. So we've ignored that. 
almost completely with COVID because the vast majority of people die over 75, but we just, in the media, they just talk about broad numbers. Yeah. Um, there, there appears to be, a, a, in across Western and other countries, an increase in young to middle age mortality. Um, so it's hard to know exactly what that is from, but it is, you know, what we expect when we make people poorer. Um, and we also, you know, we cut down healthcare access, we cut, we increase tendency towards alcoholism or drug use, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not, you know, it's not surprising. And it's, it's very hard to disentangle, right? you know, the numbers, how many died of the virus, which is some certainly, and sure. those that died from lockdowns, but certainly those that died from lockdowns will on average be much younger than those who died from the virus. Wow. Well, you know, and what you're mentioning earlier, like my question would be, why would the WHO recommend things then that were already previously proven not to be successful? Yeah, and we'd say recommended in 2019, you don't do in their pandemic influenza guidelines. So I, I think the answer is what we talked about earlier, that they, it was originally funded, core funded by countries. It was based on you know, healthcare expertise. Now it's very much influenced by, for instance, software entrepreneurs who fund it to a very large extent. So if you go against what the funder wants, you don't get any more money. The WHO is full of humans. So you know, the tendency is to do what your um, benefactors would like you to do so that you can keep yeah. salaries coming in the next few years. What would you have done to improve the outcomes for patients and to avoid this economic social collapse that was created? Like, what would you have done to improve all this? When you look back at it now, because you sit in a pretty good seat to, to say some things. So the first thing you do is you give people information so that they can make rational decisions. We knew in March, February, March, 2020, the age distribution of death from COVID. Everyone should have known that. When they gave out death statistics, they should have explained who these people were, how they were dying. Um, there was a lot of exaggeration of um, overflowing ICUs, et cetera. Some were busy, but if you look at the statistics, nothing like what the media was saying. So you never instill panic in the population, and that's what right. was deliberately done. Uh, you don't, you avoid conflict of interest, so you obviously don't have corporations and major investors having a direct say in the management of the, you know, of the yeah. healthcare. And you focus on the people who are most vulnerable, um, which clearly in this case was, you know, a very well-defined group of the population who are quite high risk. So you focus on them, you give them a sensible care. Uh, one thing we did very early on, which is part of this panic, and you know, the panic affects medical staff as well as the public, was you know, intubation in emergency departments of almost everyone who came in sick with COVID. And it, it's standard knowledge in medicine that if you intubate a very elderly, frail person, it's very difficult to get them off the intubator. In New York State, about 90% of those intubated died in the early months. Because of their elderly? Because they're elderly and intubation can be harmful as well. 
you can damage the lungs, etc. So, and when, when you make an old person, you paralyze them, which you have to do to intubate, then they're very prone to getting defamed thrombosis, bed sores, etc. So you're putting these very old frail people in a state where they're much less likely to survive. Whereas in the past, we would have ensured they had, they were active, as active as possible. We would have used sort of positive pressure ventilation with a bit of oxygen, which they're finally using now. And we would have had physiotherapists something in their chest, et cetera. But instead, we, we put people in hazmat suits for a virus that wasn't dangerous to most of those people and treated these people in, in a way that we, we know in medicine is more likely to increase mortality. So, so yeah, it, it's, it's a panic reaction, yeah. not, not just in the public. And there is no reason for that. I, I mean, personally, I think there was some intent in that yeah, uh, because you know, as we've seen, a lot of people got very, very wealthy through what's happened. But this is UNICEF data on South Asia. They published it. Um, you've probably never heard because the media don't pick this up. Uh, but we hear about COVID deaths in India. We don't yeah. hear about the hundreds of thousands of dead children. The um, yeah, hundreds of thousands of um, girls being assaulted because they're out of school and so on and at home and they're in poverty and unwanted pregnancies and teenagers and et cetera, et cetera. The, the disaster that we cause in society, all these things used to matter. You know, in the media, in the West, we had human rights organisations. Where are they? You know, we, people don't realise how much we've lost. It's not just losing work. We've lost the whole idea that human rights matter. See, some of the people that we interview will say things like, well, we should have known after so many months. Or, but what I'm hearing you say is that we already knew that we shouldn't do that, that lockdowns don't work, intubate, like all these different things. It wasn't as though, oh, we just discovered the things you're talking about. You keep saying that, no, we knew that. It was known when it comes to... Uh, different areas, whereas some people say, well, now we've learned so much, we'll handle the next one better. But I'm hearing from you that a lot of the way they dealt with it that didn't work, that it was known that it wouldn't work. Yes, it was known that it wouldn't work. Or it was known that it was very dangerous and that if it yeah. did work a bit, there would also be huge collateral harm. That's, you know, you can argue about whether it would have worked, but what we do know, you know, if you lock down the respiratory virus, it's still gonna spread. You may slow the spread. So you can argue that if you're really gonna get ICUs ready, et cetera, and you think that a lot of people are gonna end up there, you can argue perhaps that for two or three weeks, it, you know, slowing it down a little bit while you get ready. But that's not what happened at all. We, we know that there's harm from these measures. So we always have to weigh, you know, even if it's two or three weeks, is that worth it for the harm? And you know, probably even then, it was probably clear that it wasn't because we knew that the age range and, you know, locking, locking up taxpayers, for instance, and working people, it doesn't just stop them moving. It stops you funding your health system for the next three, four years or, whatever, you know, in the future. So... Whenever you harm the economy, you're harming future health. 
And we know that that's not just learned. So we know that when we lock down a country, lock down the economy, we're storing up harm for the future. What they're proving now in natural immunity is, is so much better is what they're saying. But well, we, that's another thing we always knew. I mean, this is one of the really interesting things about the pandemic, stuff like that. So the vaccine has one protein or part of one protein. Mm -hmm. You know, the mRNA makes that protein, yeah. It's one protein out of four in the virus. It's part of a protein. It's the protein that varies the most. So it's the last one you'd, you'd use for a vaccine almost. So, but if you're infected with a whole virus, you, there's all four proteins there. You know, it's, it's in the cells that, it's in the mucosa. So you get mucosal immunity as well, which you don't if you inject into an arm. So, you know, all this is just basic immunology. We always know, you know if you've had measles, you don't need a measles vaccine. You know, it's just, just basic. So there's nothing new in this. We, we just pretended we didn't know. I'm not an immunologist. I'm just a public health physician, done a PhD, et cetera. But, I mean, you don't need to be. This is basic mm -hmm. immunology that you're all taught in medical school. Every doctor knows yep. that. Every doctor with half a brain knows that natural immunity to respiratory virus is probably going to be much more effective than a vaccine. When you take a look at some of the things we've been talking about and the global thing that's going on, you could talk about it at a community level, hospital level, you could talk about it at a country level, mm. uh, but everybody gets news from everywhere around the world. And so very astute authors have written books about China. Uh, others have written articles about China's influence with the WHO and that we need to be very concerned, especially national leaders and, and politicians, of uh, some of the things that are taking place when you look at the world. Is that something you see and sense from, from where you're at? Yeah, uh, clearly there's a lot of influences at play here. Um, China is acting like in many ways like the other powers have in the past perhaps in you know trying to increase its influence etc um you know the british the americans etc russians have done this in the past and probably still do it or clearly still do it so uh, i think you know, china has been very influential on the, the who it, it's also you know it's a country of 1.3 billion people they should have some influence um Clearly, in the West, we need to decide whether that is the sort of influence and the sort of, sort of society that we want to live under. I don't think we can say China should not have an influence. It's a lot of people. Um, but we need to decide whether we allow that to influence the way that we live. But th there are also a lot of other you know, groups involved in this. The World Economic Forum has played a very big role, I think, in... Uh, the, the harm, promoting the harms that have been done and is continuing to do so. There are individual people who have got very wealthy out of this who seem to be pushing this agenda for a long time. So I, I don't think you can put your finger on any one group. Um, right. If you, look, if you look back in history, you know, it's normal to be exploited and maybe we're just back to normal. But there are quite a number of groups who perhaps appear to be working together, but because their interests happen to mm -hmm. um, you know, 
work together at the moment. So you know, there are those who are trying to make a profit. There are probably those who are trying to increase their country's influence, etc. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, underneath it all, it's uh, certainly in the West, you know, this has always happened in the world. In, in the West, we seem to have put aside sort of basic human rights and um, concerns of conflicts of interest. We, we've put this idea that these, you know, it's almost we're becoming like a feudal society, I think, and we're allowing ourselves to do that. We're mm -hmm. um, following the dictates of these, this very wealthy groups of people and large corporations, etc. And I, I don't think we can necessarily blame China or other countries for that. I think we are, um, you know, we're choosing a certain path that we've chosen in the last few years that yeah. we're sort of reaping that. A lot of people are taking advantage of what's going on. Yes. And, yeah. Uh, and you, in a way, you can't blame them for that. That's the way the world has always worked. Yeah. Uh, so what what can we do as non-scientists, like the average person? You know, the, the, there's these two echo chambers, but we really, I mean, everybody should want truth when it comes to science and real statistics being interpreted properly and, and the brilliant minds who should be consulted rather than people who just want to make money. Like, what can I do about it? What can the average person do? about trying to help get us back to some sense of normalcy? Firstly, question whatever you're told and don't just assume that because someone says they're an expert, they are saying things for your benefit. They may be deliberately not doing so, or they may think they're doing so, but actually they're not you. They don't know your family. They don't know your values in life, etc. So there's no reason why they would be necessarily saying what's best for you. So we, we need to demand that we um, make our own decisions for ourselves and we have that right. I, I think a, a lot of where we are is due to a sort of devaluing of, of humankind. And we're, we're seeing people as numbers, we're seeing people, um, and we're seeing you know, death as the end of everything. And we must stop that at all costs rather than valuing life and thinking about what's actually important in life. And uh, I think most people, they don't see the, you know, avoiding a virus as the most important thing in their lives, but they're allowing governments and people in charge to make that happen and make that the most important thing. So I think we've got to sort of retrieve the values of life that, you know, yeah. The importance of family. I mean, the whole idea of allowing old people to die in nursing homes alone without any family visiting them is just insane and so you know, incredibly cruel. You can only do that if you see people as numbers and not as sort of intrinsically valuable um, beings who you know have something more than just a, a simple physical body and a lump of biology. So. If you, we're being influenced by people, I think you think that way, and we've sort of got to take back the reins of society yeah. and say that's not the way we're going to live. Sounds like individual freedom has got to get back to being championed rather than just looking at the group or the whole. And... Yeah, and that doesn't mean not caring for other people, obviously. No. 
But if you look at history, whenever the group have been put ahead of the individuals, um, that's when things go wrong. That's when you have programs. That's when you start hitting yeah. whole ethnic groups. And it's when society ends up as a disaster. And so, you know, if you value individuals, then you value their ability to make their own choices. And that's where we need to be. This has been excellent. We're out of time here, but thank you so much for being with us and giving us just a really good look at this. And uh, we'll have to talk again and pick up some of these other topics that need to be discussed as well. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, I'll talk to you. Thanks for having me. Return to Reason is supported by our fans. We are not handcuffed by advertisers or shareholders. The need for media with integrity is more important than ever. Consider becoming a partner and fueling the unheard truth by visiting returntoreason.tv.